Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Kunst and we are 62 days away from the inauguration. Joe Biden, president-elect, are you kidding me? Okay, I'm not the first one to say that. I am quoting Aaron Brockovich in today's Guardian, but it is too good and too true not to repeat. The Biden transition is not off to a good start. We have huge challenges that demand seismic actions but we are getting the same old, same old lobbyists, corporate enablers. The revolving door is making me sick to my stomach. Aaron Brockovich went off like an Elon Musk rocket because Joe Biden put a DuPont Chemicals spin doctor on his transition team for the environment. Joe Biden, are you effing kidding me? His name is Michael McCabe and he was a communications consultant to DuPont when the company was fighting regulation of a chemical that they manufacture called PFOA. The compound can produce liver damage, cancer, and lowered fertility. As Brockovich writes, quote, someone who advised DuPont on how to avoid regulations is not someone we want advising this new administration. And as we already know, it isn't just this one corporate shill in this one transition committee. The Biden transition is doubling down on company men and women, Uber, Lyft, Disney, Facebook, who's testifying on Capitol Hill right now. Yes, I just said Facebook. The same Facebook that enabled right-wing propaganda that helped elect Trump. I'm old enough to remember when MSNBC and every liberal sh can shut up about Russia's partnership with Facebook and handing us Trump. This is the same Facebook that Biden's own campaign spokesperson, Bill Russo, said was, quote, shredding our democracy in this just finished election. This is a pattern. Biden takes clear stands against the environmental damage by chemical companies or democratic dam damage by tech companies. But then the brave words melt into thin air as the government gets put together with the advice of chemical industry consultants and tech worshipers. Are you effing kidding me, Joe Biden? This is not time for business as usual. There is too much pain and struggle out there. There was before COVID. We don't even have a firm stance on how bad it's about to get. The country is seeing a COVID surge right now. Folks are in standoffs with landlords over evictions. Small businesses across America haven't paid their rents in months. Student debt is climbing and not getting paid. Babies are being separated from parents. Their mothers are getting forced hysterectomies. The climate is near beyond recovery. The police are amping up surveillance and violence. Shall I continue? We are not going to find a middle road in which we make deals with corporations to get us out of this. There is no incrementalism out of this disaster that incrementalist theories and strategies paved the way for. We need clear, bold, big, courageous leadership unrestrained by donors or corporate power. The day is done. The neoliberals, have extracted everything they could from the American people, just as corporations have extracted everything they could from air, the land, and the workers. Joe Biden, stop kidding me and get real. You have one shot to be a transformative president. Don't you want history to look well on you? Do it for your ego, dude. Come on, man. Don't give up your shot by surrounding yourself with folks who represent the wrong interests, the interests that got us to this disaster that are only going to make it worse and are going to make a lot of money off of a struggling America. Do you want to be an FDR or a Hoover? Your pal, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, he says, don't throw away your shot. Don't throw away your shot. We have a great show today. Kevin Young is here to talk about his new book, The Lovers of Power. Then later we have Rep Rob and Arun Chowdhury on to talk about well, how we can pressure. I mean, that's really what this whole show is going to be about today is how we can pressure Joe Biden, who does not seem to be listening to the people, the people who, who, who on both sides want a $15 minimum wage, the people who want COVID relief, the people who deserve more than $1,200 a year. What is it going to take? How do we get out of this? That is what we're discussing today. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I had to take a breath. 
because I'm really pissed off today, as you could tell in my opening. Uh, but thank God Kevin Young's here. Kevin Young is a history professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is a co-author of Lovers of Power. Uh, it is a new book out, uh, Lovers of Power, How the One Percent Rules and What the 99% Can Do About It. I'm really angry right now because I feel like no matter what we do, uh, it is business as usual, as I said in my opening. I don't know if you caught it, Kevin, but I mean, it, you're presenting a theory of change that I'm really buying into right now. Like I am at the, and I'm somebody who's worked in like reforming electoral politics. And I just like, what is going on? How can we pressure the Biden administration? How can we do anything in this moment of crisis? Please inform us, enlighten us. <laughs> well, that, that's the big question. And it's, it's on so many people's minds right now. Um, you know, I'm certainly... Uh, relieved that Trump lost the election. Uh, but the question remains, what do we do about Biden? Uh, he's not particularly progressive. He never has been. Uh, so progressives are now asking ourselves, how do we most effectively exercise pressure over this administration? And um, I think that it's it's important to think about the sources of political power in the United States. Uh, Joe Biden himself and the Democratic Party itself uh, are not the real wielders of power, uh, nor is the Republican Party. Uh, the sources of political power in the country go far deeper than that. It goes to the, the 1%, the 1% of major corporations and investors and executives uh, and banks and so on uh, that really control policy behind the scenes. So if we want to affect change in policy, if we want to influence the Biden administration in this case, uh, I think it makes sense to go go after the corporations and the banks, target the 1% uh, directly. Uh, and in fact, if we go back through United States history, um, some of the most successful, successful social movements have done just that. When you say target um, the 1% in the banks, I mean, and uh, in, in, in big corporations, I mean, obviously it's a mammoth uh, task to, to, to take on um, at a time when, I mean, I'm just immediately thinking unions are probably the most effective way to, to do so uh, with, you know, general strike and otherwise, but unions are, are much weaker than they've been. Um, and their leadership, not all of it, but, but most of the leadership in America's unions um, tends to be pretty tied to to elected officials and afraid of challenging these elected officials. So how can you how how can we do this quickly enough? Because it's not like like I feel like what's going on right now, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because this is just like my armchair analysis. We are just starting to kind of come up with these theories, but it's not happening fast enough. We're not getting enough people in Congress elected, enough progressives in Congress elected. We are not, um, we obviously lost the presidency, the, the progressives lost the presidency. Uh, unions are not growing fast enough and the leadership is not being um, challenged fast enough. And meanwhile, capital is just like crushing us. So how, how, how can, how can we push back against corporations if we've, we're just like nowhere near the level we need to be for them to feel it? Or am I wrong? I agree. It can certainly be demoralizing. And here, I think, is where a historical perspective can be really valuable. Uh, you know, in 1932, when FDR was elected for the first time, the labor movement and the country as a whole faced a situation which is not really too different from what we face right now. Um, of course, they didn't have a pandemic to deal with. Uh, they didn't have the looming ecological catastrophe that we have. Uh, but in other respects, they, they faced similar circumstances. The labor movement in the United States was very weak. And then 1920s and early 30s. Uh, it wasn't until several years into the Depression uh, that there was this upsurge of labor militancy, uh, almost 2,000 strikes in 1934, uh, which led to the passage of the uh, National Labor Relations Act the following year, and succeeded in bringing around a very reluctant FDR, an FDR who had campaigned on a pretty conservative uh, fiscal platform. Uh, he wasn't talking about guaranteeing the right to unionize. He wasn't talking about big spending programs. Uh, it was the union movement above all uh, that did that, and, and specifically the leftists within the labor movement. Um, so we need to keep in mind that uh, the labor movement has faced adversity. It has faced 
uh, entrenched business-friendly leadership uh, as it did in the 1920s and early 30s with the American Federation of Labor, which was uh, white-led, it was male-led, it was uh, skilled laborers uh, who tried to exclude everyone else. Uh, so they were able to change the situation uh, through a lot, of, a lot of hard work. Um, and I think it will be important to uh, rebuild the labor movement uh, today, but it's also important to recognize that there are a lot of bright spots within the labor movement. Uh, if we look at the teacher strikes that have uh, taken place across the country in recent years, uh, that's a very inspiring example of people taking collective action, often with a lot of success. You know, are you saying that we just stay like out of electoral politics as, as, as a movement and just use these outside forces, labor, um, Black Lives Matter movements, et cetera, to, to pressure the existing lawmakers? Well, I think that elections do certainly matter. Uh, having Even having Joe Biden in office makes a significant difference versus having Donald Trump in office. Uh, not on every policy, but on a number of policies that have impacts on people's lives, there is a difference there. Uh, but I think the most effective way to build uh, or, or to, to uh, achieve better electoral outcomes, maybe to build non-electoral movements. That is movements that are focused on confronting the 1% directly, uh, because those movements can not only win immediate gains that will improve people's lives, they also educate people. The way that the Black Lives Matter and the Black, uh, Black uprisings of the last several years have really age educated the population. Uh, the way that Occupy Wall Street educated the population uh, about economic inequality and corporate power. Um, so I think that these movements, which are not, uh, not uh, directly focused on elections, can in fact have a powerful influence. And that influence uh, includes their influence on electoral outcomes. Um, what are some bright spots right now that, that you're looking at? If, if, if we can see like pressure points, I mean, this is what I actually really appreciate about your, your book is I think there's, there's been very little conversation, um, at least with this, this duration of, I mean, this moment, this generation um, rising into activism about pressure points, because, you know, <sighs> Having worked in like some of these like commissions, for instance, I was very strategic about what kind of attacks I wanted to make and how I wanted to make them, not just like blanket attacks. And and on our show yesterday, I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking for a second, but I'm just like very, um, I'm just like feeling this a lot today, obviously. Uh, on the show yesterday, we talked about how Sunrise was upset over Joe Biden's transition team and and like... I was like, obviously, I mean, you, you, there, there was a conscious decision, a strategic decision to go down that path, to see if you could move Joe Biden on climate, to see if you could get Bernie Sanders as labor secretary. And I always thought that that was a bad pressure point. Like you're not thinking strategically about where that you can actually move them, if you can move them at all. Um, and, and garnering the energy of a movement and exciting them and getting them to make phone calls and getting them to show up and protest at offices. I feel like we have to be very thoughtful about how we motivate young people in particular who could be very frustrated at the end of this and just say, it's not worth doing anymore. And so I ask you, where are the pressure points right now? Where are, are, are some places that we can mobilize that will be more effective than, I don't know, making phone calls to Joe Biden's office? Yeah, I, I think that the default mode for political involvement in our country is getting involved with elections or uh, electoral campaigns or lobbying perhaps. And then, uh, on the more uh, assertive end of things, you have people who argue for, you know, criticizing the politicians and maybe going to the White House and protesting or sitting in at congressional uh, members' offices and that kind of thing. And, you know, those actions can have an, Im an impact, but I think that they're not necessarily the most uh, effective pressure point, as you say. Uh, and if we go back to uh, the 1960s, this great era of uh, social movement, power and, uh, and strength and victory, uh, ultimately, and we go to the maybe the most iconic instance of 1960s activism, which was the triumph of the Southern Civil Rights Movement in the early 60s. And the way that that movement uh, achieved its power and its victories uh, was not by directly criticizing politicians necessarily. It wasn't by electing politicians. It wasn't through lobbying. Uh, it was through direct disruption of the Southern economy. Uh, so if we go to the Birmingham confrontation in 1963, everyone's seen the pictures of the, the dogs and fire hoses being deployed against protesters. Uh, 
Um, the reason why the protesters won in that case was not because they were able to uh, appeal to the morality and the sympathy and the outrage of northern liberals. Um, it was because they were able to directly disrupt uh, business as usual in Birmingham. They, they staged boycotts, sit-ins, marches that filled up the whole downtown. And in the spring of 1963, they imposed millions of dollars in costs on the white merchants of Birmingham. So strangely enough, we see the white merchants of Birmingham, including the head of the Chamber of Commerce, who is this uh, uh, white supremacist um, uh, uh, real estate magnate uh, locally, and he was actually the one who led the charge uh, to uh, racially integrate Birmingham because his constituents, the businesses of Birmingham, were suffering so much because of the disruption from this movement. Uh, so he went to the police and he went to the city legislators and the, and the mayor and said, stop repressing the movement and allow for racial integration. Um, so this is a case where the movement succeeded in targeting the economic power holders in the community, and in so doing, they were able to achieve a meaningful shift in what the government was actually doing at the time. And I think that this, this example holds a lot of lessons uh, for our current movements against police violence, uh, against uh, racism, against um, uh, climate change, um, and, uh, you know, we need to look carefully at the lessons from uh, from uh, this uh, episode in the 1960s. I, I think, you know, just looking alternatively, so, so this was a moment where, I mean, obviously monopolies existed, but there's the, the concentration of power in some of these companies is, I mean, listen, we're, our show, right, is powered on YouTube. It's on, uh, we're using Zoom. I mean, it's, it's so in the vehicles for disruption, right? It's, I think it's just really hard for people to process is like, what do you, how do you boycott Google? How do you boycott Dow? I mean, we're, I don't even know what chemical, like what am I using that has Dow chemicals in it, right? How do you boycott um, oil and gas when you need to get to work in the, and, and will that even make a difference uh, given where most gas is, is, is consumed? Um, I think that's why the general strike seems very appealing to folks and maybe rent strikes. But if we want to move Joe Biden on these issues that are going to have the, the most dire uh, consequence, I mean, the banks, like, how do, yes, we can all go and put our money into, um, into different places, right? Community banks. Um, but is it enough for this moment because of the amount of power that these corporations have and these banks have? I think one of the brightest spots right now, ironically enough, is the movement against the oil and gas industry. Uh, this is a movement that has had a major impact both under Obama and under Trump. And this has kind of gone under the radar because, you know, we're used to thinking about uh, Trump as this invulnerable obstacle to uh, uh, progressive demands and progressive reforms. Uh, but the movement has actually made substantial headway. And I'm thinking about the activism against oil and gas pipelines. Uh, and against drilling and, and fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, Trump has certainly done everything he can uh, to try to advance the interests of the fossil fuels companies. Uh, Obama did as well, really, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, you know, with some sort of... Uh, um, um, uh, Keystone, limits. for instance, like when folks protest, he said, he listened. <laughs> well, right. So Obama at least placed, you know, he's willing to place some limits on the, on what the industry was able to do. Um, but the movement is what's really been significant here. The movement has uh, adopted a multi-pronged approach where they have uh, direct protests at the site of the, uh, the um, pipelines. In the case of the Keystone XL and uh, Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, there was that big confrontation. Uh, and um, that's been one aspect of the movement. Another aspect has been economic pressure, especially targeting the banks that invest in the Dakota Access Pipeline and these other pipeline companies. Uh, and then they've also used the courts. And the courts have actually been a very promising avenue of attack here, law, 
uh, launching lawsuits against uh, companies. And you know, lawsuits aren't the the most exciting uh, example of activism. Perhaps uh, we don't like the idea of giving up our power to lawyers and so on. Uh, but the lawsuits, in conjunction with these other direct pressure tactics, uh, have started to have a real impact, and they've started to introduce enough uncertainty in the financial markets that. Uh, finance capital, investors, the people who give the money to the fossil fuels companies to be able to do what they do, um, are starting to have uh, serious misgivings about committing more money to these uh, fossil fuel infrastructure and extraction projects. And I think the focus of the movement needs to be on uh, creating enough disruption and uh, enough delays in increasing the costs to these companies to the point where the big time investors who really control the economy start to uh, uh, move their money elsewhere and invest in renewables and other sectors. And to a significant extent, this is already happening. If you read the pages of the business press, which I think is one of the best ways to figure out uh, what impact the movement is actually having, uh, you'll see that, that the oil and gas executives and the financial analysts and uh, big investors are really scared about the impact that the movement is having and the headway that it's made in the last few years. So I think this is this is a neglected bright spot. Very interesting. Um, so divestment strategies, disruption at sites of of of, of oil and you know the pipelines, etc. Um, one aspect. If if let's take like student loans, for instance, <laughs> what would be a strategy for that? I mean, this is... Well, you know, in the same way that workers can go on strike by withholding their labor, uh, people who are in debt can collectively uh, refuse to repay that debt uh, and, and try to negotiate or collectively uh, uh, pressure for better terms or to have some of that debt uh, relieved or forgiven, as they say. Um, now, that's difficult to do. Uh, it requires organization. It requires a big collective effort, you know, because if 12 uh, students who are indebted go out and say they're not going to repay, uh, you know, they're going to, that effort is going to be crushed pretty easily by the banks. Uh, so it does require organization. Um, and uh, organization um, at the, starting at the grassroots level um, is, is crucial for all of these things. You know, it's, it's not easy to do. It doesn't produce immediate results most of the time. Uh, but if we don't have strong organizations in our workplaces, in our communities, and in our, our apartment buildings and in, on our campuses uh, that, can, that can wage these struggles at the local level and actually uh, win these gains, uh, then we're not gonna be able to uh, decisively shift national policy. So you're, you're, you're an historian and I, I'm glad that you referenced the 60s because I've been thinking a lot about the, the uprisings of the 60s, the student-led uprisings globally, um, and, and of course, uh, the uprisings in response to the racist policies of the South, et cetera. Um, but there was a hyper reaction, especially, I mean, I, I think there are probably some arguments, you probably could illustrate this much more than I could, that the rise of neoliberalism, the invention of neoliberalism came as a consequence of, of the uprisings of the 60s and, and then the austerity measures in the 70s, et cetera. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting in this moment right now where, where folks are are angry, upset, in moments of, of economic um, when, when economic, economic stress, uh, inequality, et cetera, people are frustrated, right? And it seems like the strategy from neoliberals is just to double down. And I I want to hear some. I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is they shifted their strategy in response to the '60s, and. I don't know where they're going to go now. Like, how do you, we figured out neoliberalism. We understand what's, what's, what the, what the game is. Right. Um, I mean, you, you study this stuff. So, so, so like, I guess the question is like, how do we, where are we going from here? What is their next move going to be? And how do we prepare for that? Right. That's, that's a big question. And, very big question. Sorry. And, it was, it was all over the place and disjointed, but you know, it's, you know it's, saying. it's, of course, hard to, to predict, um, but in the 70s, there certainly was a very concerted backlash against the movements of the 60s and early 70s. Uh, if we go back to um, Lewis Powell's memorandum from 1971, this guy who was 
uh, you know, close to business circles, and he was uh, very soon thereafter appointed to the Supreme Court of the U.S., uh, but he wrote this long memorandum talking about uh, how the uh, American free enterprise system and its ideals uh, are under attack uh, on college campuses and, you know, in the workplaces from the consumer rights and environmental movements and so on. And, you know, so that was, that was a big uh, call, wake-up call, uh, and he's saying we need to go on the offensive uh, against these movements. So that's when you have the formation of the business roundtable and all of these corporate PACs and, you know, all of these um, you know, attack agencies to, to really go after uh, the workers' rights movement, consumer rights and environmental movements and so on. Um, so, and you know, that has had devastating consequences. Uh, it's hollowed out uh, the labor movement. It's hollowed out much of the society. Um, but I think it's important to recognize here that uh, the interests of elites in this country um, are not always predetermined. Um, that is to say, they, they, um, they decide what they're going to do in response to movement pressures or the lack thereof. Um, so by building the kinds of movements that can target the 1% and actually make them pay a price for the status quo, uh, we have the ability uh, within, a certain, within certain parameters at least uh, to substantially alter uh, what the, the country's economic elite um, uh, tried to do. Uh, and I think the, the example of the fossil fuel industries and um, finance capital and the way that investors have been uh, starting to reevaluate their um, their investments in those in those industries uh, is one important example. Now, absent the pressure from the movement, um, they're unlikely to just spontaneously withdraw uh, from the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about. Uh, uh, about economic elites' um, interest in averting ecological catastrophe. And of course, in a long-term sense, it makes sense. Yeah, they don't, they don't want to have the world destroyed. Uh, but from an economic perspective, that's not, an, that's not the way that, that investors and, and executives and, and CEOs think. They think in terms of short-term profits. Um, so it, it takes the power of a movement to uh, push those, those institutions uh, to, uh, in effect, recognize that long-term interest in averting uh, climate catastrophe. Uh, so the movement pressure here really is uh, central, and I would argue more central than uh, who's sitting in the White House or even who's sitting in Congress. Okay, so um, if the movements uh, start to take your advice, how do we make sure that these movements, because we a lot of movements aren't organic, like like the Dapple protests, right? Um, Standing Rock, there was no organization. There was no George Soros funding it. There was like, despite what Fox News says, um, it was very organic. But and, and much of the climate movement has been that way. But there is, in response to these neoliberal forces, there's been like, and tactics of the last, you know, 30, 40 years, um, there's been a, a concerted effort to create organizations, and I guess my, which which is tied to capital. It's tied to donors, small donors, big donors, a mix, um, foundations. How do you make sure that a movement is, for lack of a better word, without sounding conspiratorial, co-opted by somebody else's interests, by the donors' interests? Right. There are certain, certainly plenty of examples of that happening uh, historically and recently, and I think that this is one of the real dangers of. Uh, the nonprofit model itself. Um, there's been a lot of criticism uh, from social movement organizers. Um, I'm thinking of a book called uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, which is a great edited volume on uh, some of the dangers of, of the nonprofit uh, industrial complex, as some, of, uh, some people call it. Um, and, you know, with, with the uh, decimation of the labor movement, in a way, it makes sense that uh, so many activists and organizers would turn to nonprofits and foundations to try to uh, get money to, to do the very important work that they do. Uh, but that kind of a funding model and that kind of structure carries some major and inherent limitations. Uh, because if you're depending on money from the big foundations and from outside funders and big grants and so on, um, rather than on the contributions of your own membership, uh, that's almost inevitably going to uh, lead to, some, to uh, uh, certain decisions which uh, may, um, may not serve your members uh, as well as they might if you had a, a, um, a membership due structure in the way that the labor movement has always had. 
Uh, now, the labor movement itself doesn't always serve the interests of its membership either, uh, but uh, when you have uh, an organization that's funded by membership dues, that is an important way of keeping the organization's leadership uh, accountable on some level to, to the members. Membership base versus, okay, fair enough. I mean, I guess that's, that's the, the simplest way of doing it, but um, but again, I mean, we, we exist in power structures. And like you said, you know, labor does not always respond to its members' needs. And Teachers Union is a perfect example. The uprisings um, organized by teachers from the ground up uh, were certainly not the, probably the, the strategies of the leadership in the teachers' movement, which is probably one of the more left uh, unions that we have today. Kevin Young, super interesting. Any final notes, um, points of hope? You make me feel a little bit better today, but I'm still not there. <laughs> <laughs> Even if this was just my therapy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I too uh, often go to a place of pessimism. I mean, everywhere we look, there's, there's reason for despair. And I think in the midst of that, it's also important to remember the, the victories that have been won in the past, uh, the way that organizers and, and revolutionaries of the past have or, overcome enormous odds, uh, actually um, odds that are uh, much more um, uh, uh, negative and imposing than uh, what we have to uh, deal with today in some ways. Uh, so I think uh, drawing inspiration from our, our movement ancestors uh, is important. And also looking to the ways that uh, organizers of today are already uh, confronting centers of power, uh, the, the indigenous and climate movements against pipelines and drilling and so on uh, is a great example. Uh, so there's a lot going on around us that is also cause for optimism, I believe. Fascinating. Uh, Kevin Young, thank you for coming on. And you can check out Kevin's book uh, in all the places you buy books, but preferably places that uh, do not start with an A and end with an N, I would say. <laughs> uh, the book is called Lovers of Power. Uh, he is the co-author, uh, Lovers of Power, How the 1% Rules and What the 99% Can Do About It. Kevin Young, to run Ban Banerjee, I believe. Is that how you say it? Tarrant Tar Banerjee. Mm -hmm. Tarrant, okay. And Michael Schwartz are the co-authors. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right, guys, we will be right back after this break with our uh, fascinating panel. <laughs> I don't want to call it power panel because that's what they do on cable news. So we need like, wait, let's crowdsource this. You guys have an idea what we call our panels because uh, cable news always has that gimmicky, like it's a power panel, it's a leadership panel, whatever. Uh, but we'll be right back with our panel. Welcome back. Oh my God, run! you're starting to look like Marx. <laughs> you're in Germany. I know, I know. You've got a blazer on. What's it's going on? Totally. Although I seem to have put it on like incorrectly. <laughs> you better um, have your cat shoes on. That's that's what I really care about. Run, job. Well, have I told you I'm down to my last pair because yeah. I don't make them anymore? Yeah, it's really. <laughs> we need to take a picture of those and maybe we can send it out to the to the universe, our viewership, and maybe they know where we can find these cat shoes. Totally. They're very specific. Uh, when I hosted a show on SiriusXM, uh, in 2016, it was a late night show, and we would sometimes tape in D.C., even though I was based in New York, and Ron was based in D.C., and he would come in, and he'd, we we were super casual. Uh, <laughs> when I say super casual, I usually had some alcohol. Uh, it was a nine to midnight show, and yeah. come in, and he'd have his cat shoes on, and I have this photo of you putting your feet up on the on the table with your cat shoes, so. All right, Arun is a political filmmaker. We're not on. We're not going to talk about your catches anymore. I promise. Uh, he was formerly the first official White House videographer and worked as the creative director for the one and only Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. And he is based in Berlin right now. I know I say it in the background. So, Arun, um, I want to start off. We're, we're expecting Chris, uh, Representative Rab uh, to join us in a bit, but he is in his government office. I have to start off with this. So I'm going to start off with yeah. the political stuff that he can't discuss because he's in his government office or these strict rules like, you know, regarding politics in your office or out. But They're you equivalent can... of the Hatch Act. Yes, exactly. They're, they're equivalent of the Hatch Act. But don't be too stressed out because you can still gift a politician in Pennsylvania a car. A rocket ship, a house. What's the car? What's totally the car? legal. Yeah, yeah. Not a big All right. So, okay. I, I, I want to start off with this um, 
this story that, uh, if I could pull it up in time, uh, there was a piece from uh, Hamilton Nolan in, in, in these times, and he makes a point that we are going past the point of having debates over whether to play hardball. This is sort of the theme of the show. With the GOP, I'm getting necessary stimulus help and other public welfare policies passed. Democrats, of course, need to get their act together as the opposition party, not as the face of the corporate coin. Uh, so Nolan suggests that holding the U.S. defense budget hostage would be the perfect way for Democrats to stop the performative opposition and to get some real results for the people. Now, we know uh, Pelosi, who is going to be speaker again, would rather lose to the GOP than win with leftists on the policies that matter. Uh, all the more reason to keep up this, this progressive vanguard. So I guess my question to you is, Iran, um, when you're storming the gates, which projectile are you going to bring with you? <laughs> no, I mean, I think this is a real problem. It, it doesn't feel like there's a way to out-organize this or propagandize this. I can't imagine perfect content to do this. Uh, and I think this shows, this is just another kind of chapter in the book that started in the primary of people realizing the limits of both electoral and even movement power and what actual institutional power means. It sometimes means that like your opinion doesn't matter. It, you know, Aaron Brockovich's opinion doesn't matter. Like, you know, uh, I can't think of a way to pressure the decisions that I see happening right now. And that's, you know, something that both of us, you know, do for a living is think about this. That's why I had you on today. I thought you were going to have no, some I know. brilliant theory. The What's answer. wrong with you, Varun? I'm um, like, I've like outsourced everybody I could find. I'm but, like, <laughs> but creating political costs is the only thing we know that works. Political cost, meaning there has to be a political consequence, a cost yeah. for someone's you know, decision. Like you don't get, you know, your defense budget or you don't get it easily. You know, yes. you get six more days of headlines of Dems in disarray, you know, like yeah. this is something that clearly, and maybe it divide, d divides it a bit, but right now progressives aren't getting much and they need to do things to get more. And sometimes you have to be a grain of sand to make the pearl. Uh, you know, uh, we, yeah. we saw in Obama, uh, in Obama's administration, some of the folks who were the most contentious with him were the LGBT community, and they got mm -hmm. a lot more of their agenda done than other folks. So, you know, well, that also say, took Biden just like accidentally slipping. This is <laughs> a funny changed. moment that people don't talk about that much. Yeah, yeah. yeah wait, wait. Okay, but later. actually, supposed to be at the convention. Wait, well, maybe that's it. Maybe someone just slips Biden. <laughs> Like a little note that says. But we're talking out loud or figuring out maybe it yeah. is about sort of having a tone of being like, we're taking you at your word that you want us to push you on these issues. Here are our issues and people need to come around them. I think you see folks like the Sunrise Movement trying, you know, being very specific and very realistic with what they want. Uh, but right now nice. it just doesn't, no, no, no. It's it not feels... Nice. Yeah, I mean, I've, I was, I've, I had a um, critique, criticism is not the right word, a critique of the strategies of some of the leftist organizations in the last few weeks, not because I don't think what they're doing is brilliant. I mean, storming Nancy Pelosi's office was a brilliant move. Did it get her to change her climate policy? No. Um, but a series of these, these types of, of actions, of course, does make a difference. Um, you know, in some way, even if it just moves a public opinion or shines a light on these lawmakers and how ridiculously- It's just not about the public. I think that's what we're learning because we know that's how to it. talk to the public. You that's and me, we both, we know how to talk to the public. I know how to change voters' opinions. I know how to go find new voters. This is purely institutional fight. And that's the right. real tragedy is that this is really empowering Republicans and some very bad people to do very well in the midterms because- right. People explain that. Explain the same things. We saw, like you know, people want access to things. They just don't believe Democrats will give it to them. That is the story of Joe Biden winning and them losing seats in the House. People actually want all of the things that people are talking about in terms of healthcare, in terms of social protections, in terms of just money because there's a pandemic going on and there should just be. People are aware that there should be a flow of money coming from Washington, and there is no guarantee that Democrats are the ones who are going to give it to them, and they're aware. I mean, it's it's. If you look at the numbers, I haven't really said this publicly and I'll probably turn it into an open. Yes, Biden got like 7 million more votes or something. I don't even know what the last count yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, than, than, yeah. Great. Amazing. Cool. Um, electorally, I mean, in some of these key states where, where, where Trump is fighting for the vote and, and going completely batshit about it, he still did not win by large margins. So we do have to keep that in mind. There was no wave. There was no wave. There was no 
reaction to Trump. We are still living in Trump's America and it is just going to get worse. And that's what you, you say about the midterms is so brilliant because I think that folks think there's there's just this this massive swell of anti-Republicanism right now that just is not existing at all. Trump and found 10 million new votes despite being incredibly incompetent on COVID. I mean, I think we've probably talked about this before, but just COVID is the reason that the president's gone. Uh, but we are destined to have this exact same election. The 2016 election was the 2020 election, will be the 2024 election. We will, it will take probably just as long, even without mm -hmm. a pandemic, to count all of it. It will be close in all the same places. It's going to be annoying. Like, this is what we are set up for. There was absolutely no tilt in the balance. And in the state legislatures, which we can certainly, you know, talk to Rep. Rob about, like the people who make the rules are still in, are still Republicans in almost every state house. So we are destined to have the minority party in this country exercise our far outside their grasp. They're going to have everything but the presidency, in my opinion, come 2022. The yeah. Senate, the House, the courts. So, uh, you know, on that note, um, Barack Obama, I know I didn't, I didn't set you up for this, but just, you just made me think of, of the schlacking and, and how under Obama's leadership, literally his leadership, his DNC, uh, there was a, a concerted effort to defund state parties. And as a result, oh my God, shocker, we lost legislatures across the board and there's been no effort at all to fix those problems. Like the response, it was like means testing. That's what they did. Their response to this was Tom Perez saying, That's well, if you do X, Y, Z, you get $5,000 for your, your party and then you have to raise it on your own in your state that like has two wealthy people. It starts I mean, to sound like sort of, you know, quasi-private education kind of yeah, stuff. You know? yeah. yeah, for the party, the party that they're supposed to be winning with. And, and it's not like they don't have the money. Come on, <laughs> like we know where the money is coming from. So I, I, I want to ask you, because he came out with this book this week, uh, Barack Obama, who you were the videographer for. And I understand like it's complicated, but... <laughs> I think there might be a pressure point. Maybe I'm wrong. He, I feel like a lot of what is going on right now, and I say this because I watched the DNC chairs race. I was part of the DNC seeing the, the very strategic effort by the Obama world to maintain power and his legacy. I think he's so obsessed with his legacy and being like the cool president. And people are waking up, obviously. There's a movement that wanted a better way, whether it was Keith Ellison, who challenged Barack Obama, or Bernie Sanders, who challenged Barack Obama while he was in office. Both of them did in office. I feel like this is just like the vengeance of Barack Obama. Like, we are not giving them anything because I still want to be the president that was better. Well, you, like, this is, the, this is the world we live in today. Rising inequality. Like, thank you. Is the pressure point to just shame the hell out of Barack Obama? I think every president, when you're done, you know, you use this time to secure your legacy and decide what your legacy, and I think that's fine, and I think you take some lumps, and I think you take some disappointments along the way, but I have to say that this is revisionist history, but it's sort of being revised the wrong way, you know, like if I was huddled with Obama, I would be trying to sort of explain how the things he was doing were some of the proto-organizing things that people in the Sanders campaign took over. And like, you know, this idea of bringing outsiders into the party and hire, you know, letting professionals like make content, like all of this stuff that is so similar and so interesting. And the fact that he's sort of decided whether it's Lula you know, or like Democratic parties to sort of take pot shots at the left does seem, I'm just gonna be open. This is someone who I consider a political mentor and a friend, like, a, a, a strange choice that is based in the in wanting to be right. Yeah, I mean, like they used to say this about Bill Clinton. America's not ready for America's not ready for the kind of big things you think America's ready for, and being proved wrong in any of that. Yeah, seems to be upsetting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, and, and this isn't just like him venting about like Lula and saying like Lula was like a Tammany Hall. What was, the, what was the thing he said? He was, yeah, like a Tammany Hall boss, yeah, yeah. Like a Tammany Hall boss. First off, I mean, there's a lot of criticisms of Tammany Hall, but like also no, but remember what Tammany Hall No, but it's not someone who's just recently been vindicated, you know, Clearly. in a big way of, of, of corruption charges in a very public way. Everything about that statement was 
out of touch, not to mention that he came out of the Chicago machine. He was literally like, like propped up by the Chicago machine and like a major Chicago donor who literally was like, oh, Barack Obama, we should definitely invest in him and like build his political career with him. Like this is how democratic politics works. So Republican politics works. It's how politics works. If you don't come out of some sort of machine and you win, I don't know who you are because that doesn't happen. You're, you're Bernie Sanders. That's basically you know, who you are. The demise of the machines <laughs> is like losing 2016. Like we said, like Philly should have been able to cough up 5,000 more votes. Like, come on, Philly. Like where's the machine? Right. Speaking of the machine, where is Rep. Rob? No, I'm kidding. Philly. I think he's having issues with uh, with signing on. But oh, oh, oh my God, God. we called for the Philly machine and they showed up. Totally. <laughs> but you're upside down, Rep. There we are. Oh no. <laughs> this. I've been out of the country. Whatever happened to the statue of Frank Rizzo? Did it make it through the summer or did it get pulled down? Got pulled down. Nice. Oh, some progress. Rep, Rab, you're on mute. It was really solidly in there. It was like a real testament to like physics and engineering. They had it like. <laughs> the machine kind of pulled down for like a week. They pulled it down. Excellent. Rep Rab uh, represents the 200th district in Pennsylvania, uh, and he's clearly in his government office, so we have to be very thoughtful about what we talk about. So no more conversations about the political machine and Barack Obama, but we can talk about, let's say, uh, COVID relief. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's, let's do a little bit more because, um, you know, we... we <laughs> Whoever does some- it... We'll just reap huge rewards. So why I don't under, it's like, yes, I'm extremely angry at Democrats. I also wonder at Donald Trump, why doesn't, you know, he spends some of the energy he's doing weird things doing, just sending out checks of money he finds lying around the treasury. Like whoever (laughs) sends the American people some money is just set up for a lot of votes. So on that note, um, I, I mean, I have no idea what the state of, of of electoral politics is in Pennsylvania right now because it's just taken so long and I've lost interest and I guess that's by design. But um, <laughs> Rep. Rep, what is the makeup of your legislature right now? Did you guys pull through? Uh, we got hammered. It was okay. a bloodbath uh, on the state level. We lost to um, uh, the Democratic, the what I, who I thought was a popular uh Democratic state treasurer did not win for re-election. He lost um, by a couple points. Um, the auditor general um, is a Bangladeshi American um, who lost, um, and we lost three seats in the House, and we lost one and picked up a seat in the Senate. So we netted zero. Uh, so we're down by four in a in a body of fifty. And uh, we're down to 90, 91 out of 203 in, in the state house. So it, it was um, a virtual bloodbath um, on the state level. And I'm, I'm told that that was the case in a number of states where there was um, undervoting down ticket. Um, so people basically voted for Sona top and, and left. Um, so I think it has a lot to do with that and a lot to do with... Um, uh, gerrymandering as well. Uh, we're the in the top three most gerrymandered uh, states, and uh, it shows. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, my colleagues across the aisle, they, they won fair and square. Uh, if you can, with the exception of uh, the vestiges and uh, byproducts of gerrymandering, which is problematic. The good news is that in 2022, there'll be new districts redrawn both congressionally and on the state level. And there is a, um, a state Supreme Court that um, did uh, come in and change the congressional maps, uh, which will make it fairer for all folks. And I'm excited about that. So at least I know that by t- in 2022, the maps on the state level um, will be at least incrementally fairer than they are now, which gives me a sense of hope that more um, uh, public potential public servants um, will be on the right side of these important issues that we talk on your sh- uh, talk about on your show. So this is, I mean, this just goes. The whole show has been pretty much political, so I, I want to be cautious about that. But, um, but about like what what the movement can do, what we can do to fight back against what Arun said so eloquently is, you know, we're going to be facing a Republican a Republican led uh, country for many years to come because they've just outsmarted us. Uh, and, and I don't even want to say outsmarted us because I, I do believe that there are many Democrats that just are 
purely in partnership. I mean, like they're fist bumping their way with Lindsey Graham. Uh, they're fist bumping through gerrymandering, you know, losing legislatures, et cetera. But I have like a very silly question to ask because the only thing that gives me hope is the generations um, that the next generation, our, my generation, millennials, are just overwhelmingly progressive. And I hope that they stay that way. And, and I think the consequences of this economy are going to force that. So my question is for you, Rep. Rab, what is the age makeup <laughs> of, of the Republicans? Um, like average age, would you say? I mean, are there enough young Republicans to freak me out? Yes. Um, so I actually have that. I created the equity committee in the Pennsylvania House Democratic Caucus, where we look at issues around gender, race, ethnicity, class, poverty. Um, and so we, we have, um, I'm actually going to put this together and I will share it with, with you and your, your team. It's a look at what the average age is in the, among House Republicans and House Democrats. Um, so there's a lot of age diversity. I, in my caucus, um, we have an outgoing member who is in his early 80s, and we have someone coming in in her late 20s. So really, just for the first time in American history, our, our labor force has four generations working shoulder to shoulder, at least since slavery. Like if you include slavery, then that'd be the norm. But um, thereafter, uh, the paid labor force, shall we say. Um, but so... Um, by the way, the younger Republicans, and I don't know if this is, has to do with generation or what's in their backyard, and I want people to know this, if your biggest employer in your backyard is a, a wind farm or a solar facility, you're probably going to be for renewable energy regardless of where you stand on, uh, on energy policy, because no elected official is opposed to good family sustaining jobs being created in their backyard. So we have someone who's a big advocate of, of community solar, who is a conservative Republican. And I believe he's, he's probably in his thirties. Mm. Um, so there's some agnosticism as it relates to energy policy. And as a big energy nerd myself uh, on the energy supply task force for the national conference of state legislatures, um, there are conservative colleagues of mine who are pro-renewables and pro-coal at the same time. They're like, we like all forms. Well, all that come concern, from America, though? that's what matters. So that concerns me. I mean, there's a couple things that concern me. When you have a Republican who's like, oh, no, no, I'm, and that's why folks in Long Island vote for their Republican lawmaker, even though it's a Democratic the district, because yeah, they're, they're good on that one issue. They're great on the issue that they care about in their backyard. Right. Right. Um, I think the other thing is the bench. And, I, I, you know, actually, there's some reporting on this, and maybe even from some unlikely place like Politico, but tracing how sort of Republicans traditionally through college and young Republicans clubs have always paid people and made sure they had stipends and made sure they were taken care of and made a real pipeline from, you know, being a high school Republican to actually running for something. Uh, in a way that Democrats don't, and it's an honor, and you're a volunteer, and aren't you lucky to be here? Austerity so, for times. you look around Congress, you know, four generations is, is that's super cool. But when I'm looking at Congress, I see two generations. I see young people and old people in a totally hollowed out center, you know, of folks who've been kicked up to the Senate or, you know, someplace else. Uh, and that is a huge problem, right? You know, people are looking past Nancy Pelosi to the next thing, and it's hard to even see what that would be because there's no bench. I have a theory about that. Mm. My theory is that um, too many Democrats, white Democrats in high positions in the DNC and that infrastructure are afraid of black people. They're afraid of um, our power and our influence as uh, an electoral unit to uh, determine who the next president is and Senate, et cetera, et cetera. And that in recognizing that, they have to honor our, our collective power and do things that they don't really want to do because they have a corporatist agenda that is socially liberal on the outside, but um, does not fundamentally believe in systemic change and um, doesn't really want to talk about racial equity in the most meaningful ways. And so by uh, it's tough because no, no Democratic candidate for president or, or in, in many Senate races can win without the quote unquote black vote, but they never want to invest in black communities right. to turn that out and to provide that infrastructure 
a run that you talk about that is so commonplace on the conservative side, paid fellowships, paid internships, uh, uh, ladders of opportunity that have never really been there in the Democratic Party and the Democratic uh, ecosystem because fundamentally they're afraid that if uh, there was true um, equity um, that they would no longer control the fiefdoms that they do. And I, I find it a, a maybe not so subtle form of racism that we have to address explicitly because it's unacceptable. If we spent just 10% of the money that went to Jamie Harrison and God bless him um, uh, to put towards infrastructure into grassroots mobilizing mm -hmm. to the most progressive organizations that know those communities backwards and forwards because they're from those communities, we could have had much different outcomes, but that's not how corporate Democrats operate. And we have to rest um, the party um, and uh, rest the party from those interests. And it's not going to be easy. And to put it in speak, like what you're saying is we need to like, you know, actually bring out low propensity voters. And this is something that Democrats and our entire operation and all the fancy computer programs are specifically not tailored to do. That's, exactly. that's right. I think this is, people think it's like a failure, like they're a nap that Robbie Mook is like some sort of idiot. He might be. But with that being said, they are, it is by design. It is strategic. This isn't, this isn't like we learned how to politic in 2008. There, yeah. we, the, the Democrats held the House for 30 years until Bill Clinton, okay? There was a very strategic design to not invest in specific communities, but don't worry, Bill Clinton plays a saxophone, and don't worry, we have Jamie Harrison, who is also a lobbyist. Let's just be very clear about what kind of Black people they want to invest in, too. And, I mean, that's, that's the bigger concern, is that, you know, Cedric Richmond, the CBC chair, can come in and be, in, you know, take more oil money by hundreds of thousands of dollars than any other lawmaker in Congress, any, and be, and, and his community is one of the top three most polluted communities in the country. So, you know, this is, I think what you're saying, Rep. Rab, is, 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 is a hundred percent true. And they're doubling down on this strategy and, you know, having worked through the DNC dynamics, seeing it up close, um, there is a lot of tension there, but it's, it's, I think more folks who are willing to step up and talk about what it means to actually invest like you are, these are actual pressure points for the DNC. I think it's going to be very hard for them to run away from communities that literally got Joe Biden the victory um, that we have today. Uh, how much time? Do you guys have a few more minutes? Can we continue on? Yeah? Yes. All right. Um, anyways, so so I, I, I want to go back to COVID relief because this, something has to give. I mean, it's 1200 bucks in eight months, nine months. <laughs> it's yeah. We're it's facing, insulting. it's insulting. We're facing an eviction crisis. Um, we're just stalling on it. I mean, when folks are finally evicted, some are going to have thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 to pay off to their landlords. Not to mention people are getting kicked out of their homes. Uh, not to mention student debt has to be paid still while you have to pay for these. I mean, there's just so many compounded issues here. And um, I'm going to go to you, Aran, first. I'm going to go to Rep. Rap. Aran, how is Europe handling this? Do, you're, you're very involved in the, the political forces in Europe. How is Germany a conservative, I mean, a center center? This is a fiscally conservative, conservative uh, country. You. you know, yeah. like I have only even been here for a little bit. I am already receiving bonuses per child I have for Corona for extra expenses that may be happening on top of actually just simply receiving money from the state to make sure that, you know, my kids can take chess club or whatever the hell it is I want to do with them. Like, you know, there is support comes in dollars here. And yeah, there are real blank spots in the European project. And, you know, a lot of working people, you know, especially, you know, in the North of England, et cetera, like didn't see themselves as being part of the European project. But the answer is, here is eye-popping amounts of money. People are talking about things America used to do. You know, they're talking about the Marshall Plan. They're talking about back when big initiatives happened and America was a big part of it, but now they're talking about it for themselves and they're doing it themselves. The European recovery that is, you know, David Sassoli is pushing in the European Parliament right now is a gigantic amount of money that they are going to double or triple based on what happens this fall. They, there is just a, the kind of response that you would naturally imagine would happen in America, but is the kind of thing we just don't do anymore because we've been hollowed out politically and with any social ambition. 
Well, we do it for corporations. Right. Of course. Right. So, and corporations well, what is it are about people, Europe right? That, I mean, corporations are people. Uh, obviously, we have a campaign finance system that does not exist similarly in, in, in Europe. And even the electoral cycles are different. Around, around you know more than anybody. And that can be frustrating probably for you but too. People expect more. They expect more and so they get more. And I guess this is part of, you know, what's successful about the Bernie project and other things is that we can get the American people to want the whole loaf, as Bernie would say, instead of just crumbs. Um, but people want more and so they get more. And this is all across the board. I mean, a conservative, you know, Berlusconi-esque politician in Italy thinks that workers should be getting checks what right now, thinks the tourism ministry of Italy should be protected so that it's still there. Think that you can build back in sustainable ways because it's gonna make you money. Like, this is what's happening. It's like very simple, it's very logical. It's nothing special like the coffee or the beer or whatever the hell is supposed to be better. You know, it's nothing about that. It's actually, they're doing some old fashioned Keynesianism. It's something we used to know how to do and we simply lack the will to do it. That's it, yeah. I mean, what's, what, what are you guys talking about in the legislature in Pennsylvania? Well, we're here, in, I'm here in Harrisburg to uh, finalize the budget uh, that we have not seen. And today was supposed to be our last legislative session day of, of the uh, legislative term, which ends November 30th. They added on another day tomorrow. We normally have about a $38 billion annual state budget. Um, we're down $3 billion. They're, they're doing um, gimmicks and smoke and mirrors, the Republicans who control the House and the Senate, um, and, you know, uh, air towards austerity. But Democrats need to be bold in terms of our vision. If we had taken over the House, what would we do differently? And our message is not clear. Um, and so that's a problem on both sides. Um, but yeah, it's austerity. The, the days of, of the Republicans who, who actually believed in government, however small, um, are long since gone. And it shows in, in, uh, in state legislatures like Pennsylvania, which is the largest full-time state legislature in the country. It has a massive infrastructure. It can do so much, but it has delivered so little. And uh, it has come down to gimmickry and uh, rhetoric. And uh, I, I don't know how this will, will turn out for the 13 million of us here in Pennsylvania, but it's gonna be a challenge. Um, I know you can't talk about this, but we started off talking about Tammany Hall, at least Tammany Hall, and, and then that led to the Philadelphia machine, at least uh, Tammany Hall oh, delivered to its that. people. Oh, you can talk about that. I, I don't know what the limits are. I've never had a yeah. that. Um, but I mean, we, we started off like it was criticizing Obama because he made this 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 statement about Lula and, and how he came. It's, it's ridiculous about Tammany Hall, but at least Tammany Hall delivered for its people like they've basically took a, taken the worst tactics out of Tammany Hall and then like forgot about what, what was good. Just, about what? right. Providing Come a chicken on. in every pot. Yeah. Yes, a chicken in every pot. This is like, die. Just like die. <laughs> Elect us and die. That's also, people throw around Tammany Hall, but actually, you know, when you dig into it, it's interesting. And I would recommend to all everyone watching uh, Plunkett of Tammany Hall. It's a very thin book. It's about like 40 pages long, but it's sort of like the rules by which you live as a machine politician. And they're interesting. They're interesting. And I think they're telling and I would recommend it highly. What I love about you, Ron, you're the only one I know that would defend Tammany Hall. Um, <laughs> Good little book. A little book, a little book. All right, guys, I... I need to go like do some jumping jacks because I'm just, this is today. Was because we all have a lot of energy and no way to influence this transition. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's, that's right. it. You know, yeah. you, you, you Get see a me around. Because this is all that's happening. Sorry to me. Well, I mean, we, we can do it from, we <laughs> can influence fun. it, just not in all the ways we'd like to. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. All right. You, yeah. I mean, what I can't wait to do is get you elected to the U.S. Senate Representative Rab. Mm -hmm. I'm putting it out there right now, guys. I'm starting the campaign. Your voice needs to be out there, your leadership. You come from the part of Philadelphia that had the highest turnout, right? That's right, the highest turnout in the entire they state. owe it to you. You saved our country, maybe. Saved our country. So who better to run Pennsylvania and the machine than Representative Chris Rabb? <laughs> <laughs> Let's implode yeah. the machine, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Arun Chadri, Representative Rep Rab uh, out of Philadelphia, run in Berlin. Uh, we will see you next week. And for those of you in the chat, let me just do some uh, shout outs here if I can get my cursor to work.
Ah, give me a second. I hope we edit this part out. <laughs> uh, thanks to Peter Griffin, quote, Biden, FDR, Hoover, more like Reagan, am I right? Uh, it, without the charisma and the acting skills, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Uh, Philip, Michelle, um, or Mikkel, or Michael, I don't know. I'm, I apologize about that. Thank you for the love. Uh, panel name ideas. I love it. Okay. Brian June says, Const Crew with a K. I like that. Midi Doctor says, X-Force. <laughs> Kurt says, Death Panel, obviously. <laughs> that would be Sarah Palin's show. Uh, Dave Pickett says, The Nomi Key Network. I like that. Uh, Bella Moon says, Cognizant Panel. That's that's good. Um, <laughs> the nomin... I can't read. The Nomis Person Anonymous person, the anonymous person, I get it. People's panel, I like that. Uh, Kowalski from Nebraska, thank you for the love. He says, first, uh, progressive panel, I like that. Secondly, what is your wine of choice? I'm not much of an alcoholic guy, but enjoy an occasional glass of wine. Um, I had like a little bit too much wine last night. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I tend to like... Um, anything dry, a dry white, a dry uh, red, specifically from countries um, in this, like I, I love Argentinian wine and Chilean wine and South African wine and Spanish wine and uh, Australian wine, uh, New Zealand wine, because they have, they don't give me headaches. I don't like mixing anything. If I mix like even a blend like if I have one glass, I will get a headache immediately. Um, so there's something about those regions. I think it has to do with the sulfites and some other stuff that they use uh, that makes me feel better when I drink it. And if I don't, um, I get a headache, which is what I had earlier today. Brian June, thanks for the love. Brian June says, how can normies like me figure out what things, i.e. canceling student debt, can be done via executive order versus needing Congress to pass a bill? Oh, that is a great question. And then I'm not going to answer it right now, but we will look into that and maybe we'll address it soon. Uh, thank you to Professor Harvey K and the Nomi Kids mix hashtag Nomi Kids mixing it up in the live chat, and to Midi Doctors and Jules for working the algorithm. Huge, 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 huge thanks to our moderators Bob and Choken for keeping the chat room troll free. And one more suggestion from Warren Ellis: Nomi Keys Salon. I like that. Cause it's like, so yeah. All right. Well, let's just keep thinking about these things. All right, guys, we're going to have a special uh, interview later today. So make sure to click that little bell button. You'll see when it pops up. I'm not telling you when, cause I don't know when yet, <laughs> but it will be later today. And if you're not already, make sure to subscribe and join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will see you tomorrow for Femme Friday.